This is Sports and Torts with David Spada and Elliot Harris on TalkZone.com. Elliot, we were talking during the break about Haley Mills here, and maybe we'll have to get her on the show one day. Works for me. 66 years old. Is there two of her? Didn't she play twins? Yeah, in Parent Trap. You see, I don't remember that parent trip. I remember the one with Lindsay Lohan. I've seen with the Lindsay kid. Lohan? You remember her? I remember her. I, I don't think I saw that parent trap with her, though. But let's get to our next guest. You said he's a stoogeologist. Well, Robert Curson is a preeminent stoogeologist, also a preeminent author of a best-selling book, Shadow Divers, which if Bill Clinton hadn't come out with his autobiography... Bob's book would have been number one, so he had to settle for number two. But he didn't have any Monica Lewinsky and Shadow Divers. If he had had Monica Lewinsky and Shadow Divers, I think that would have surpassed Bill Clinton. And Bob also wrote Crashing Through, the story of uh, a blind man who goes through uh, a tremendous journey to regain his sight. Former Chicago Sun-Times writer-reporter. Chicago Magazine, Esquire Magazine. He's also an Esquire. <laughs> have right. I also an attorney? Have I have I forgotten anything? Well, that that covers me. Okay, good. And he's the smartest attorney in the room. He's a Harvard man. <laughs> well, does that make him smarter than you? What's, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Never mind. Oh, wait, wait. Bush was a Yale man, wasn't he? Is that what it was? <laughs> yeah. That explains a lot. Isn't there a picture of? Uh, George Bush Sr. shaking hands with Babe Ruth uh, in his Yale uniform. Yeah, on the on the diamond. Yeah, I, th- I think because uh, he went to what Columbia. Bush Senior was he Harvard also? No. Or uh, I think Yale. Yale. I think was Yale. he Yale? Yeah. Lou Gehrig. Lou Gehrig was Columbia. Lou Gehrig was yeah. Columbia. See, you're getting your Ivy Leagues and your your ball players and your politicians all messed up. What's better, Harvard or Yale? Well, nobody, you know, when I got to Harvard, I expected everyone to want to go to the Harvard-Yale football game with me, and nobody had any interest. And coming from the University of Wisconsin, which was my undergrad, you know, football was paramount. So uh, I give up on the Ivy League schools from that moment on. So they're all the same to me. Because, I mean, they said Brown's kind of like the armpit of the Ivy League, people say. Yeah. All the people I met who went to Ivy League schools were way smarter than I was anyway, so it all melded into one. I'm a Big Ten guy. But by osmosis, something rubs off, right? Isn't that the theory? Isn't that why you go? Supposedly, that's why you go. <laughs> but, you know, the, the publishing business isn't so great, David, so I may have to ask you for a, a job. You know, I, I did pass the bar, so. Which bar? Illinois. Oh, okay. I haven't paid my dues in 17 years, but if I can catch up, okay. I may have to. And, and you're in fairly physical phys- physical shape, so you'd be able to chase after ambulances the way David does? Well, I can bench press 100 pounds. I know that. So, <laughs> so you're ready for the bliss tryouts? Ready for the bliss tryouts. So do you enjoy the writing still? I love it. Yeah, the, the writing is the, – the thing I love about writing most is that you can journey from world to world. You know, I can spend a year and a half, two years in a completely different world and then go on to something fresh. So when I was an attorney, I wasn't a the, – the bad thing about being an attorney was I had a double whammy. Um I hated the work, and I was terrible at it to boot. So when you have that combination, it's not a good sign for your future. With writing, I was I was a little bit better, I found. So that's where I went. I would say more than a little. And you immersed yourself in Shadow Divers, which dealt with an underwater topic? Yeah, it's a true story of two ordinary guys who uh, were scuba, you know, weekend scuba divers 
who found uh, in New Jersey waters um, a sunken World War II German U-boat with 56 dead German sailors aboard. And nobody in the world, no government, Navy, expert, or historian had any idea which U-boat this was, who was inside it, why it sank, or what it was doing in New Jersey, of all things. So these two guys uh, became obsessed with answering that question. It cost them almost everything to do it, but they solved the mystery in the end. It's a true story. So that was that was my first book. Was it like on a spy mission or something? Or Well, um, read the book. Hi- hi- yeah, Hitler was sen- <laughs> routinely sending um, U-boats into American waters. So it was here on his orders, and they were here to sink American ships. The question is, why didn't anybody have any record of having sunk this ship? There's 56 guys dead inside it. So that's that was the crux of the mystery. Which boat was this and what was it doing here? And uh, it was a way harder mystery to solve than they had believed. They thought they could solve this mystery in a day or two. It took six years, and they rewrote the history books. The, you know, Nobody in the world could could do it, but these two ordinary blue-collar workers ended up rewriting the books. It's not like the game You Sunk My Battleship. <laughs> it's a little bit like that. They had to kind of <laughs> narrow things down in that in that sense. But, yeah, it was but with a lot more risk, of course. Now, you refer to that as your first book. Some of us will refer to the official encyclopedia. Yes, I, the- I misspoke. My first real book was the official Three Stooges Encyclopedia, which I had intended to write since about age four. So that was a, a real dream come true for me. But Shadow Divers was the first book book. Commercial Stooges. success. No, no, Stooges was more, I, I had the feeling, a, a labor of love. Yes, labor of love. In fact, I started writing that Stooges Encyclopedia in law school because I was so, I found the lecture so stultifying that I began to write down all the funny names and places and words and phrases that I had remembered in all the Stooge films because I always loved the language of the Stooges. I thought there was beautiful writing involved. I know that sounds crazy, but when I was in law school, I started to write down as many of these things as I could remember. Silly things like King Root and Tootin. I would make the list of kings and then the, you know, the list of princesses and things like that. But that became the foundation for this book, which really celebrates uh, the writing of the Stooges uh, as much or more than anything else. So when Alan Dershowitz was given a lecture, you were thinking about the Stooges? Yeah. In fact, <laughs> I, I took criminal law with Alan Dershowitz. And I'm embarrassed to say that I spent the good majority of my time making these Stooge notebooks. He was a great teacher, by the way, too. Very good lecturer. But I, law wasn't for me. How did the encyclopedia come about? I mean, it's one thing to, to write this down on a notepad or type it into a computer, it's another th- to have it become a reality. Right. I knew nothing about publishing a book. And, you know, really I was doing this to save my sanity during law school. But once I realized I had compiled several notebooks full of this information and that they were making me laugh every time I went back to the notebook, I started to think, well, maybe this could be a book because anytime I told it uh, about my notebooks to other Stooge fans, they'd say, God, I would love to have something like that. Because it turned out I wasn't the only one who loved the language. And so I started to look into how does a person get a book published? I, I wasn't a writer at the time. I knew nothing about it. But that's when I started to investigate the world of publishing and found out that you need a literary agent and uh, there has to be a, a place in the market for it. And it turned out that nobody had ever written anything like that. In fact, at the time, there were very few books about the Stooges at all. You could find out almost nothing separate from Moe's biography and you know a couple things here and there. So it turned out to be a very good time, and that's how I got started. I found an agent, and uh, that's how it got rolling. And part of this project involved Bella Lugosi, Jr.? 
Yeah, that was an amazing aspect. I, the so, son of Dracula? Yeah, he was literally the son of Dracula. It turned out, and this is uh, a real interesting legal uh, case, was that um, after I'd completed my book and been paid and had a publisher arranged and everything, I got a call from the son of Dracula, Bella Lugosi Jr., who explained that he was a lawyer in California who specialized in protecting the um, the uh, rights to the likenesses of celebrities. And the reason he'd gotten into that business was because previously in California, once a celebrity or anyone died, the rights to their likeness um, reverted to the public domain so that the minute Bella Lugosi died, you or I could put um, his face on coffee mugs or T-shirts or whatever and, and profit ourselves. And uh, Bella did not think that was right. He, he believed that that should be um, uh, inheritable by you know the whoever the celebrity wished to, to leave the rights to. And so he changed the law in California, as I remember it, such that uh, the rights to the, a celebrity's likeness could be left to heirs. Um, that changed everything because the estates of Marilyn Monroe or James Dean are worth millions and millions of dollars every year. So in hearing about the change of the law, um, one of the three Stooges, Curly Joe Dorita, he was the last of the Stooges and only appeared in and, feature and the, films. And the worst, if I may say so. I, I have to agree there. <laughs> but a very nice guy from right, all accounts. Right. Um, his family contacted uh, Bella who and said, uh, people are making millions of dollars selling all kinds of Stooge merchandise, and we would like to you know, make our claim on that. And I think that's how it started. So he contacted me, Bella did, as an attorney and said, your book is off. Um, you can't do a book without us. And, you know, I knew a little bit from paying attention once or <laughs> twice in law school to say that I'm really allowed to write whatever I want. And he agreed with me. He said, but you can't use the photos. And the photos are everything to a book like this. You can't just put out a, a huge 300-page book of text on the Three Stooges. No. And so it became a sticking point. Ultimately, we made a deal together um, to uh, publish this together. And then he opened the archives to me. Um of stooge photos, thousands of them, that had never been seen before. So it ended up all working out in the end, but it was a, an interesting legal issue and looked like it might put a stop to the book, at least temporarily. I thought Moe controlled the whole stooge empire, and basically I figured his estate would have control. Moe did always control the business affairs of the stooges. And in fact, when Bella and his uh, his other lawyers came to represent the stooges, Moe was a third of the rights owners. Larry was a third. But interestingly, um, the rights to the third third of the Three Stooges belonged to Curly Joe Dorita and not to Curly Howard, um, the legendary Curly Howard, and not to Shemp Howard. It turned out that when the Stooges disbanded, um, the rights belonged to Mo, Larry, and Curly Joe. And so all this... Now, I'm, I'm just speaking from memory here, so I can't say that this was certainty, but my understanding was that um, it was Curly Joe who shared in a third and continues to, to this day. And I don't know that the original Curly or Shemp, um, or their families, I should say, uh, share in any of what's going on these days. So Moe screwed his two brothers in essence. Not not purposefully. <laughs> right. Not purposefully, because in those days, I don't think there was much to collect. And uh, Curly Joe kept the Stooges alive without him. I, they could easily have disbanded. And he was there when the Stooges regained their popularity and their shorts began to show on television, which was everything to them. Um, but well, I don't think anyone envisioned millions and millions of dollars like this, what's going on today. Well, t- television really 
catapulted the Stooges to the elite status that they enjoy today. Without television, they they would have just been guys who did movie shorts, and you would have had to be in the theater to see it, and and that it would have been very funny, but that would have been that. When did it start, though? Because I remember I was born in 71. I remember throughout the 70s coming home from school watching the Stooges around weekends. I can remember watching the Stooges in the 50s. Yeah, I think it was late 50s that they began to show on television. And as Elliot said, that was that changed everything. Because now you could plan to watch the Stooges and you could see the episodes over and over again. And that's key. I mean, you could, you could see the, the best Stooge short in the world and it might show for six weeks in a theater. And then you'd never see it again. This was my dad's era. You know, growing up, and it would be shown before the major feature of the day, along with a cartoon and something else. But now, when you could see Stooges films over and over and memorize the lines and look forward to seeing them again, that was everything. What's your favorite uh, episode of the Stooges? Well, this changes as I get older and I mature. You mature? Yes, I. You know, I. I think my favorite all-time episode is one called Microphonies, where Curly. Um, changes into a female opera singer and uh, and records the voices of spring and performs at a at a society party that one is has always stayed with me and it, interestingly curly is already starting to get a little bit sick in in that year so um, in the in the last several curly shorts you can see that he's definitely not himself anymore and uh, was to have a stroke and then have to leave the group but in Microphonies, it's, it's one of his last great, great performances, but you can see little traces that something's wrong with him already, which makes me like it even more because he's really fighting through it, and he's absolutely at his all-time best. So that's, I think that's my favorite of all time. How does Shemp get displaced and Curly take over? Well, Shemp is the original third stooge, right. and he is touring in vaudeville with Mo, and then Larry is added on. So it really was just Shemp and Mo at first. But Shemp had a wonderful opportunities to work in feature films. He was a bit, becoming a big star and opted to go work um, with the likes of W.C. Fields and others. Uh, so they needed someone new. It wasn't an acrimonious separation or anything. Um, but the, their little brother, Mo and Shemp's little brother, uh, Curly had been watching them his whole life, and he knew the routines. He'd seen vaudeville all, all growing up, and he was really ready to go. He was quite a handsome guy. He had a full head of hair, um, but they needed him to look a certain part, so he shaved his head, uh, wore some clothes that were a little bit too small on him, and he became he became Curly. Curly also became a ladies' man. Yes, he was very much the ladies' man, and uh, I think he was married four times, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, loved women and loved animals. He had several dogs at any given time. And uh, from all accounts, was uh, kind of a quiet guy away from the set, but a very uh, kind person and uh, wonderful with children as well. And Larry was the gambler. Mo was always bailing him out. Right. Larry gambled a lot, and he loved to – whatever he made, he spent. Um, and also, you know, I was always, as I found out more about them, very happy to hear by all accounts every one of them was – very kind to their fans and and excellent with kids and appreciated everyone who appreciated them. But Larry, you could find him at the racetrack all the time. If they ever couldn't find him, that the first call was to the <laughs> racetrack. Uh, spent a lot. Mo was just the opposite. Very conservative, um, very frugal, uh, saved a lot of money and handled all their business affairs for them. 
What was the closest you came to making a, a direct connection with the Stooges? Well, in about 1974, I believe, my dad took me to California for the first time. And we got a, one of the maps of the celebrities' homes. And the first place we went was to Moe's house and rang the doorbell. He wasn't home, which is one of my great disappointments. Yeah. Um, the next closest connection I made was spending some time with Moe's daughter when my first, when my, you know, the Encyclopedia, Stooges Encyclopedia came out. That was a big honor. And then only last summer, I visited Curly's grave in California, which was an emotional experience. There was nobody else there. It's in an old, almost ancient-looking Jewish cemetery. And at Curly's grave, there had been there were hundreds of things left by fans for him, pictures and coins and notes and uh, letters of expression and gratitude. And I found myself uh, thanking Curly out loud for um, the early days of watching him with my dad and sharing that together and uh, for providing so many laughs and then a legacy from my dad to me and now from me to my sons. So it turned out to be a much more emotional experience than I had ever expected. It was just me and Curly all alone. Uh, nobody else was there. So where is his grave? It's some. It took me about half an hour to reach it in that Los Angeles traffic. I can't remember okay. the town exactly, but about half an hour outside of downtown Los Angeles. And one of his brothers, I think Shemp is there as well, if I remember, but I couldn't get to Shemp because he was interred, and uh, that part was closed off that day. We're going to take a short break, and then when we come back, we're going to get more into the Stooges because I want to find out who your favorite Stooges. I would love to. Stay tuned. Thank you. 